Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Hey, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be continuing in the book of Genesis. This morning, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 11. And if you've been with us for any amount of time, you know that we have... um, been going through the book of Genesis, and you know, Genesis is a book about God's mercy and God's grace, if you want to really boil it down to what is being communicated in this book. It talks about God's judgment, but his mercy and his grace are what should be coming up and coming out to us. And I've noticed something, I don't know if you've noticed this, but there is a pattern that has been going on in the book of Genesis. And I want to walk us through that real quick. In chapters 1 and 2, God creates paradise. He creates what all of us are seeking for in life. Anything that, that you would want to have that is godly was there. And God turns it over to mankind, right? And he says, look, I want you to enjoy this. I want you to rule over it. I want you to maintain it. And God says this, this is the way of life, okay? Go this way. What happens in chapter 3? Man says, no, I'm not going that way. I'm going this way. He rebels. And what does he do? He brings upon himself judgment, and he brings upon himself consequences. What does God do? God pursues man. And what does he do on that? He pursues man to give grace, to give redemption. Chapter 3, verse 15, God promises to send a Savior through the seed of Eve, through one of Eve's descendants. So we move to chapter 4, Cain and Abel. God tells Cain, this is the way, this is the way to go to life, right? Walk this way and you will live. What does Cain say? No, no. And he turns and goes his way. He tries to make his own religion to give God a type of religion that God says, I don't accept that. And then he goes and kills his brother, bringing up once again upon himself consequences and judgment. What does God do? God pursues Cain with grace. He puts a mark on his head. He protects him, hoping that Cain will turn back to him, but he doesn't. Then last week, Pastor Terry preached from... uh, Chapters uh, 5 through 9, what was last week's message about? The flood, right? The judgment of God. But we need to understand, you know, that God had said, this is the way of life, walk in it. Man would not walk in it. And so he says, I'm going to destroy the world, but before I do that, I'm going to give them how many years? 120 years to repent while I have Noah, my righteous man, build this ark. And he says, if anybody will go into this ark, if anyone will go into what I have created through Noah, they will be saved. And all of mankind said, nope, that's okay, except for eight people. And in chapter 9, we see that Noah and the boys and his wives have made it through. Before I get there, I I jump something here. I want to make sure we see the pattern here, okay? What is the pattern that keeps going on? Number one, God desires to have fellowship with his creation. We need to understand that. He desires to have fellowship with his creation. Crazy as it is, mankind rebels against what God desires and brings judgment and consequences upon themselves. And 
what does God do? He pursues with mercy and grace. And this is what Genesis is teaching me, and I hope, I hope we're all learning this, is that at the heart of God is that he does not want to destroy man, but rather to bring life, that we would live. And so, in chapter 9, Noah and his family, eight people in all, come out of the ark, and they begin having babies. They began multiplying. They began to fill the earth. And then in chapter 10, we're not going to be able to go through chapter 10 this morning. If, uh, if you read that, you'll see that there's a detailed genealogical record in chapter 10. It's, it's also known as the table of nations. And if we had time, if we had, listen, if we had time to dig into this book, you would see that we all descended from one man. Who is that? Noah. We all descended from Noah. And you either descended from Japheth, Ham, or Shem. If we had time to go into that, you would see that this is where all the nations descended from. And this makes uh, me realize two things. Number one, guess what? We are all related. Look around you. We are all related as a family because we all descended from Noah. Secondly, it teaches us that there is only one race. Okay, did you hear me? There is only one race, the human race, and we're made up of a bunch of different ethnicities. So in chapter 10, we see that there's a genealogical record of where you and I descended from. And then in chapter 11, this is the chapter that we're going to be in this morning. This is the historical account of how and why all the nations came into being and why they were dispersed with that throughout the earth. And it also teaches us, chapter 11 is going to teach us where all the languages came from. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. I'm going to read through the passage as a whole so we can get a good overview, and then I'm going to go through it verse by verse. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the, Lord and the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, it is na its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now, by the time we get to chapter 11, about 100 years have passed since the flood. And as I said before, Noah's descendants have multiplied. Some have estimated that by this time, there were probably about 30,000 people on the earth. And it says in verse 1 that the whole earth had one language 
and the same words. One language and the same words. Now, Moses, when he wrote this, he's not being repetitive or redundant. One language and the same words literally means one set of words that have the same meaning. We can, you can have that in a language, can't you? Let's take our language, for example, English. Okay, I've got some pictures I want to put up here on the screen here uh, to show this. What is that? Okay. Some of, if you say solda, uh, raise your hand. You're probably from Minnesota or somewhere like that, right? If you say it's uh, soft drinks, raise your hand, okay? If it's Coke, raise your hand, right? That's a, that's, this is Coke. That's Coke. You want to have Coke? That's what that means. Uh, or one that's pop. I want to get some pop. I remember hearing that. It's like, am I saying it right, pop? Like, it's, not, it's not pop. It's pop, right? All right, let's go to the next slide. Who is the guy in the middle? Pop. No, who is that? Dad, who else? Father, Pops. Okay, next slide. What is that? It's a toboggan, isn't it? How many toboggans in here? Come on, put your hands up, right? Right. Some people say that's a hat or, no, that's a toboggan, okay? What's the next one? What is that? That's a sled, right? That's not a toboggan, that's a sled. You put a toboggan on your head, you ride on a sled, okay? That rhymes, that's the way it goes, okay? Next slide. Is it water or is it water? How many waters we got in here? One, we got one water. Okay, one, let's go to the next slide. There are three. Oh, oh, right? That's the caveman way of saying it's oil, right? Oil, oil, right? Or it's oil. Okay, it's oil, people. Oil. All right, next. Is that a wolf or a woof? All right, the big bad wolf. Next one. All right, I'm going to tell you a, a true story. <laughs> what is that? Is that a siren or a siren? I can't. Can I tell? Okay, my wife said don't tell that story. All right, so I won't. Some people call it a siren, and other people call it a siren. Last one, but not least, or is there a last? Was that the last one? That, that was the last one. So even within a, a, a group of people, we can say things, words that have different meanings, and so it causes confusion. But that's not what, what was going on amongst these people. They, their communication was less restricted because they were from the same family and the same culture. That makes a big difference, doesn't it? Being of the same culture. It did, it did not have, their unity was not based on their skin color, Okay. Their unity was not based on their skin color, and it wasn't because they all looked the same. It was because they spoke the same language, verbally and culturally. In other words, they got each other. Isn't that so good when, you, when God gives you somebody that you just get and that gets you because you're speaking the, the same language? Well, you know what? That's what heaven's going to be like one day, isn't it? That's not how it is today in this world. There's, we have divisions, but one day... Heaven is going to be like that. Revelation 7, 9, verses 9 and 10 said, After this, John again, this is the Apostle John speaking, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from every, all tribes and peoples and languages. Isn't that beautiful? Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, 
with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Those of us who are in heaven will be saying the same thing, thinking the same thing, because we will all be united by Jesus, perfectly united in Jesus. But in our passage this morning, our ancestors, we need to understand we're reading about our ancestors. They were not united in Jesus, but they were united in ungodliness. Let's look at verse 2. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar. And look at those last three words. And settled there. And settled there. Now the land of Shinar will later become the home of Babylon. And this is where modern-day Iraq exists, or Iraq, Iraq, sorry. It's Iraq, where I came from. Exist. Uh-oh, church split here. Yeah. From uh, this place today. It was a, now listen, it was a fertile and prosperous land. It would be a place that you could easily see, man, this, this is where I want to set up camp. I want to I create uh, a garden of Eden. That's what they were wanting to do there. The only problem is they wanted to create it without God. They wanted to rebel against God in order to obtain what they wanted. Now listen, this is a very important lesson for us to learn. If you want something in life and you have to rebel against God to get it, understand there is going to be problems and there's going to be destruction in your life. Okay? And that's what they're doing here. And, and it says, uh, and the reason I say that they're rebelling is because in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, right when Noah gets off the ark, this is what he says to them. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, he says this to all of them, all, all four of the men, be fruitful and multiply and what? Fill the earth. These people are not wanting to do this. You know, this is actually just a, a, um, a repeat of what God had said in Genesis 1.28. He said to fill the earth. He said, you're my image bearers. Go and fill the earth with my glory. And, uh, you know, today, I think humans have done a pretty good job with this. Um, there's not much, many places in the earth where there's not some type of people group. And you know what's an interesting uh, fact is that, I don't know if you've heard this, but have you ever heard that this world is getting overpopulated, that we need to kind of slow down on reproduction and that sort of thing because it's, it's getting overpopulated? Well, I wanna, I've got a, a picture here of, uh, of the United States. And see that red section there? That's where we live, western North Carolina. That's about 11,000 square miles. There's about 7.7 billion people in the world. Did you know that all 7.7 billion people could fit in that area? and have 40 square feet around them. That's about six point something by six point something. The entire population, look at the U.S., just the U.S. alone, how much more land there is. The earth is massive. I just thought that that was an interesting uh, fact. But uh, God said multiply and fill the earth. This is the way to life. But instead, they said No. We're not going to do that. We are going to settle in this land. Verses 3 and 4 say, 
And they said to one another, okay, so they're becoming inward. Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. It's only been a hundred years and already humanity has drifted away from God. This shows us that the ark did not change the heart of man. It's still the same inside of man. There's a rebellion that is born within all of us. And it's, uh, it's interesting to know that one of the descendants of Noah was actually leading these people into this rebellion. And his name was Nimrod. You may have heard of his name before. He's first mentioned in chapter 10, verse 8. And I want to read that. It says, Cush fathered Nimrod. Now, Cush was the grandson of Noah. And he fathered Nimrod, who would have been the great-grandson of Noah. Now, Nimrod means to rebel. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Would you, don't name your kid Nimrod, okay, unless you're wanting some trouble. He was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, what does that mean? Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Well, the people looked up to him. So they would say, you're like Nimrod. You're, you're cool like Nimrod before the Lord. Kind of like, you know, if, if, if they had had jerseys back there, back then, they would have had the name Nimrod or a pair of shoes. I'm going to get me some Nimrods and wear those. That, that's what we do, isn't it? We try to identify with greatness. Well, that's who Nimrod was amongst the people. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kolna, Kalna, in the land of where? Shinar, right? That's right where we are in this passage in Shinar. So they are being led by a mighty hunter and leader who descended from the, the line of Ham. He's one of the three sons of Noah, Ham. And apparently, Ham... His bloodline produced giants because if you guys remember back in Numbers 13, earlier this year, I preached from there about the, how Moses sent spies into the land and they saw the, the sons of Anak. And when they saw the sons of Anak who were descended from the line of Ham, when they saw them, they saw giants and they appeared to be like what? Grasshoppers in their eyes. Also, another guy that's, that's descended from the line of Nimrod was Goliath. Goliath was over nine feet, probably nine and a half feet tall. That's the one that, that remember Goliath, that David killed with a, with a stone? That's who came from the line of Nimrod. So evidently, Nimrod was a giant guy. He was a, a, a guy that won the loyalty of his relatives. And he was able to set himself up as a god to be worshipped. Listen to what the Jewish historian Josephus records. Now it was Nimrod who excited the people to such an affront and contempt of God. He persuaded them not to ascribe it to God or not to ascribe glory to God as if it were through his means they were happy, but to believe that it was their own courage which procured that happiness. He also gradually changed the government into tyranny seeing no other way of turning men from the fear of God, but to bring them into a constant dependence on his, Nimrod's, 
power. So here we have a leader. He is a, what you could call a true one world ruler. And under his rule, he led the people into unified rebellion against God. And you know, since then, there have been many who have tried to rule the world. Men like Attila the Hun, Julius Caesar, Alexander the Great, Adolf Hitler, right? And Lex Luthor. But they've all, every single one of them, has been stopped. They've all tried to rule the world, but they've been defeated in the end. But Scripture does teach, our, our word does teach that in the last days, and we are in the last days, in the last days, once again, there is going to be a one world ru- ruler who will rise up amongst us to lead the governments and the people of the world. His, his name is the Antichrist. And speaking of his day, Paul, the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 through 4 says this, no, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will come, will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness, this is the Antichrist, is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he makes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Can you hear Nimrod in that? He's, he's a, another form of Nimrod. But this world leader, when he comes, when he rises up, he will rebuild Babylon. And at some point, he will gather all the nations of the earth and lead a worldwide rebellion against God and against his Christ followers. And the scriptures teach that there will be, at some point, when this happens, great persecution that goes on amongst the people of God. But there's good news. In 2 Thessalonians, same chapter, verses two, uh, chapter 2, verse 8, it says, And then the lawless one will be revealed. Look at this whom the Lord Jesus will kill with, not with a sword, look, with the breath of his mouth. That's imagery, isn't it? What is that teaching? He's nothing to Jesus, right? Satan is nothing. He will bring him to nothing by the appearance of his coming. There's a lot more to be said about this. But we do need to understand this, that... um, that Satan is no threat for God. God. God has taken care of him, and in the end, we know that Jesus and his people will be victorious. And in our passage um, this morning, this nation that's under Nimrod, under his leadership, is in rebellion against God. And let's look at what their rebellion was. It's going to be in verses 3 and 4. There's four things that I want us to just to pull, pull out here real quickly. Number one, they wanted to build a city. Number two, they wanted to build a tower. Secondly, they wanted to, uh, thirdly, they wanted to make a name for themselves. Number four, and they did not want to be dispersed throughout the world. And really, there's nothing, you know, sinful about building a city or building a tower in and of itself. But you've got to understand what was their motive. What was the reason that they were doing this? Well, they built the city. 
They built the city so that they could protect themselves and not go out and be dispersed. That was sin. And they built the tower in order to make a name for themselves. Now, in the southern Mesopotamian area of Shamar, archaeologists of today have discovered several of these types of towers. They're they're known as as ziggurats. Everybody say that, ziggurats. Okay. They're known as ziggurats. And, you know, these, these ziggurats, that's just fun to say, ziggurats, they were built beside the temples of worship back then. And they would extend high into the heavens uh, in hopes of giving man access to the gods and also to give the gods access to man. But these are structures that men built with their own hands. This is, again, this is what man's religion is, things that we do in order to get us closer to God and to get our God closer to us. And this is a clear indication that they had begun to worship false gods in hopes of becoming gods themselves. The same thing that happened in Genesis chapter 3 when Satan said, you can become like God. They are pursuing what is in their heart. They're pursuing to become like gods and to make a name for themselves. And they clearly don't want God to be a part of it. So how does God respond to this? Okay, you see the rebellion of man. Here's the pattern again. Man is rebelling. What is God going to do? Well, verse 5 says, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Now, there's so much irony being communicated in this verse. This is the way that it could be read, uh, if I were uh, to kind of give you the sense of what it's really saying here. And the Lord had to, when he heard that they were doing something, the Lord had to stoop down from heaven in order to even see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. You see, the people think that they are, they're forming this threat against God. And he's like, Oh, okay, cool. It's kind of like the Aesop's fable where the gnat, about the gnat and the bull. Have you ever heard that? There's this gnat that comes and lands on the top of this bull, the tip of this, this bull's horn. And he sits there for a short time and, and the gnat says, pardon me, before he flies off, he says, pardon me if I have disturbed your peaceful afternoon, if I've disturbed your peaceful afternoon with the weight of my body on your horns. And the bull looks up and goes, it's all good. I didn't even know you were there. You know, sometimes we can have such a high view of ourselves that we should. That we don't have a healthy respect for who God is. We don't have a healthy fear of God. And every week we try to make it clear that God loves his creation. That he pursues his creation. But we also need to understand that, that God is not threatened by or intimidated by us. Listen to what Psalm 2, verse 1 through 4 says. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Look at what God says. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. 
Now in verse 5, God is not threatened or intimidated by man's rebellion, but he is concerned. He's not threatened, he's not intimidated, but he is concerned. And in verse 6 it says, And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. In other words, they're united by rebellion. And they have all one language. And this is the only... uh, And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do, that is evil, will now be impossible for them. God is acknowledging that that mankind has great potential. You know, when, when humans are united, that can be a good thing or that can be a bad thing. I remember when I was in middle school, uh, there was uh, a guy, when we were sitting together in class, we were united, and that was a bad thing. And so our teachers had to do what? Separate. I remember a girl, one time he was sick and he didn't come to school, and a girl said, James, you're such a different person uh, when he's not here. You're a nice guy. And I was like, okay. But I, I still remember that. We were united. We were not good for each other. So you can, being united can be a bad thing, but it can also be a good thing. We can accomplish amazing things. If we're, if we're united for the name of God. And that's what Jesus desires for his church, isn't it? In John 17, this is what he prayed. He prayed, Holy Father, speaking about his church, his people, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, that they may be one, that they may be united even as we are. God wants us, Jesus wants us to be united in the name of God. That's what his desire is for his church. And it's good when God's people are unified in making a name for God. But these people, our ancestors, were not united for godliness. Their intent was on making a name for themselves apart from God. And their unity was leading them to eternal destruction, and God was aware of this. So verse 7, God says, Come, let us go down. And they are confused their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Did you know that there's 6,900 languages in the world? About 6,900 languages in the world. And if you go back linguistic, linguistically, you, you won't go back to just one family language, but to many. And this actually supports the fact that many languages came into being in an instant. And in verse 8, it says, The Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, of all the earth, and they left off to build, building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, or Babel, which means confusion. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And so in this passage, we see once again the, the pattern that I began with. We see God wanting to bless a people and to point them in the way of life. But man says, no, I want to go my way. We see that they bring judgment upon themselves, but we also see that they bring upon them, uh, God has grace to give them. The judgment is this, that God sees what they're doing. He judges it, says this is evil. They're trying to do things apart from me, which is only going to lead to destruction. And so his judgment was to confound their language, cause confusion, so that they would be dispersed over the face of the earth. God had to make them do what they 
what he had commanded them. And when God makes you do what you don't want to do, that's judgment, okay? That's where it feels heavy-handed. Although, I wonder what would have happened if they had obediently gone out into the lands like he had commanded them. We, we will never know, but th- because this is what happened. So why did God disperse them? Why didn't he just leave them alone, leave them to themselves? Well, two reasons. Number one is very, uh, should be very obvious to us. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God, say it with me, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everything that was created, God took from nothing and he created everything. Everything belongs to God. He has the right to it, doesn't he? To everything that's been created. It's kind of like this, this afternoon, if I wanted to go over to your house. Lauren, if I wanted to, uh, me and my wife wanted to go over to your house today, I couldn't just go over there uh, without getting your permission, right? You have authority over where you live. And so God has authority over everything because he created it. That's an obvious reason of why the people should have been listening to him. But secondly, they should have listened to him because he wanted what was best for them. They should have listened to him because he wants what is best for them. For them, because God is good and He's gracious and He's merciful. I'm gonna say that again. God is good, He's gracious, and He's merciful. And we need to understand that ultimately, Satan was the one who was behind this rebellion. Because what he was trying to do was he was seeking to build an ungodly, unified rebellion, a rebellious group of people that would wipe out the seed of Eve, the promised Messiah. And because God is good and gracious and merciful, and God, because God has a purpose to send a Savior into the world, by his grace, his judgment was also a grace. And he did not leave us alone to destroy ourselves. And we all need to understand that there is a Nimrod dwelling in all of us. There is a a Nimrod that wants to conquer, that wants to rule, that wants to rebel, that wants to make a name for ourselves apart from God. And oftentimes God's kindness to us can often feel oppressive. Uh, For example, government. Government can sometimes feel like, why are they over me? And we've talked about this before, about submission to government. Uh, But government is actually a gift to us from God to keep us from destroying ourselves. And I've got an example. Uh, Back in World War II, there was a, uh, after being controlled by Russia for two years, Jed Wabney, a small town in northeastern Poland, it was captured by the Germans on June, June the 22nd, 1941. So a town in Poland named named Jed Wabney was captured. And one of the first questions that the Polish people asked the Nazis were this, can we kill the Jews? And the Jews stepped aside, I mean the Nazis stepped aside and let them do what they wanted to do. And about half the men of Jed Wabney's community participated in taking the Jews and it's, it's horrific what they did, but in the end, they put 
them in a barn, and they set it on fire. Because government had been taken away. God's kindness had been taken away and lifted, and the heart of man was exposed. Why does God not leave us alone? Why does God not leave us to ourselves? Because left to ourselves, we will destroy one another and then destroy ourselves. And God does not wish that any of us would perish. And at the same time, as Terry preached about last week, God isn't going to force you to get into the ark. He's not going to force himself upon you when it comes to salvation. But there will be a time when the door is closed. And right now, that door is open for anyone who is rebelling against God to come to him. And one of the main points in this passage that we need to understand is that though man may resist and reject God, his purposes will always be accomplished. Man cannot thwart God's purposes. And what is his purpose? His purpose is to be glorified. His purpose is to be glorified because when he is glorified, we experience life and what we were made to be. And those who respond to his kindness in mercy, his kindness and mercy will be saved. But those who resist will be destroyed. That's what this passage teaches us. And this morning I want to remind us that there was a, another time in history when God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, they came together and they said, come, let us go down to mankind. And they sent Jesus down. This time, though, not to separate us, not to divide us, not to confuse us, but to bring us back to himself. And he calls us to abandon the work of our hands. Stop building the city. Stop building your own tower. Stop trying to make a name for yourself and come and be under my name. Become a holy and a united people set apart for my name and my glory. That's what Jesus is calling us to this morning. So as I close, I want to ask you this question. And I want you to think about your life right now and, and where it's headed, where it's pointed. Who are you making a name for right now? If God were to come down right now, what would he find? Are you making a name for God or are you making a name for yourself? And you know that our, our lives, the very life that you've been given, is a gift from God. And guess what? He says it's yours to do with however you want. Although you will be brought to an account of how you invested that life. What are you doing with the life that God has entrusted you? Are you, let me ask you this, are you developing your mind? Are you guarding your heart? Are you taking care of the temple that God's given you? What are you doing with the relationships that he's entrusted to you? Are you allowing God through your life to make his name great, to make his name known throughout this world? Well, the way we do that 
is by coming to him willingly and confessing, God, I have been, I confess that I have been making a name for myself. And I come to you asking that you would deliver me from myself. I lay down at your feet. I lay all my tools, everything I have, my life, my rebellious desires, and I want to know you. And I want to be what you created me to be. I want my life to count for eternity. And you trust in what Jesus did in your place for, your, for you that you might come to him and be used to make a name for God and a name for his glory. May God give us grace to live lives that make much of him. Amen? Amen.